Okay, good morning everyone. Um, our campaign is called, as you know, hashtag follow. And let me share this with you. Amber uh, is four years old. And one night she wakes up in a terrified state. It's dark in her room. She's been asleep for a few hours. And she wakes up and she's convinced that her room is full of spooks and monsters. And she's terrified and she, in a panic, she gets out of bed, jumps out of bed and she runs to her, her parents' room and her mother puts her arms around her and tries to comfort her. And then when she's calmed down, uh, her mother leads her back into her bedroom, uh, puts her into bed, tucks her in, and she reassures her with these words. Look, Amber, she says, you're not alone in this room. God is always here with you. And Amber looked actually far from convinced and sheepishly replied to her mother, I know he is, mummy, but um, I need someone in this room with some skin on. And this little story effectively gives us a definition of and the reason for the incarnation, why God sent his only son into the world as a human being. And God, you know, took on flesh, didn't he? Because uh, like Amber, we needed someone with skin on. Now, 22nd of November, Christmas is fast approaching. And no doubt churches up and down the country will be talking about the incarnation. Our love uh, came down at Christmas. Uh, then probably the subject will be dropped uh, until the following year. So here's a thought, here's a thought for you. Is not this annual approach to the incarnation a bit flawed? So why do, I, why do I say that? Well, for this reason, according to the Bible, the idea of God uh, indwelling human flesh wasn't just something that happened on the first Christmas. Neither, neither was it uh, a 33-year-long experiment which spanned the life of Jesus on this earth. You see, the incarnation started with the Christmas story, but it didn't end with Jesus' ascension into heaven. How come? Well, simply because God's physical body is still with us today, still amongst us. 
And God is still present as physical and real today as he was in the historical Jesus. God still has skin, human skin, and physically walks upon the earth as Jesus once did. Now you're saying, what am I talking about? Well, listen to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 27. Talking to the church in Corinth, and he says this, Now you, you church, are the body of Christ, and each one of you is part of it. Again, in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 to 23, Paul says this, And God placed all things under his, that's Jesus' feet, and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Give you one more, so there's no misunderstanding here. This is important. Colossians, Colossians chapter 1, verse 24 says, Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you for the sake of his body, which is, yes, you guessed it, the church. Now, Paul doesn't say that the church represents Christ's body, or that it is Christ's mystical body. He simply says, we are Christ's body. Yep, it's a metaphor, sure, but it embodies, it's the embodiment of a profound truth that Paul believed in with all his heart because he mentions it so often. And our current theme, hashtag follow, is very um, relevant to this. God has given us a head start, if you like. See, in order to follow, we simply need to live out who we are. Now, let me acknowledge straight away that the body of Christ, the doctrine of the body of Christ, and what it means is a complex subject and is uh, the subject of literally hundreds of scholarly books. However, leaving that aside, it's quite clear, quite clear that Paul is telling us that the church, God's image bearers, that's who we are, is the visible representation of Christ on earth today. God, in that sense, is still here with skin on. That's why we need to get our theology straight. You see, some people ask, well, what's the difference? What difference does it make whether one believes in Christ 
or simply whether one believes in God? What does Christ add to God, in other words? Well, the difference is huge. Not just in theology, but in the way that we live our faith lives today. You see, a theist, a theist believes in God in heaven. A Christian believes in a God who is incarnate in them. So, question for us this morning. Does what I have explained, just explained, have profound implications for how we live out our Christian lives, both as individuals and as a community? And I think the answer is, you bet it does. You see, let me touch on a couple of areas of the Christian life which are fundamentally impacted by this truth that the incarnation is ongoing today. Let's talk about, for a few minutes, the subject of prayer. Very important part of the Christian life. Now, we are told in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 7, Ask and you will receive, search and you will find, knock and uh, the door will be opened to you. Now, have you ever wondered why that does not always work? Why does God not always answer our prayers? Perennial question. Well, there are, of course, many answers to that question. But in Matthew's Gospel, a different reason is given for unanswered prayer. You see, Matthew makes a firm link between prayer, the prayer of petition, asking God for things, and concrete action by the body of Christ, by the Christian community. He talks about teaching us how to pray, our Father, our Father. We pray as a community. And he lays out for us the Sermon on the Mount, which deals with how we live out our lives in community as a body. So using our earlier terminology, Matthew is a Christian theologian, although he wouldn't have called himself that, of course. Not simply a theistic one, meaning that for him, prayers of petition only have power to the, to the extent that they are linked to concrete action within the community of faith. Let me tell you a story that illustrates the point I'm trying to make to you this morning. An elderly nun in a nunnery is very sad because one of the young nuns under her charge, uh, and one of the young nuns that she's been mentoring, has decided to leave the community. And the elderly nun had very much liked this young nun and the spark of life that she brought to the community. She was a breath of fresh air. 
But for about a year, she had noticed that the young nun wasn't happy. And she was agonising over whether to leave the community, and she wasn't even sure whether the community liked her or wanted her to stay. So, in accordance with the order's teaching, the elderly nun prayed for the young nun, prayed fervently that she might stay. She prayed and fasted that she might realise that she was wanted and valued. And she implored that God might give her the strength to see beyond her doubts. But although she prayed with all her might, she never actually went at any time and talked to the young nun. She never told her how much the community appreciated the gift that she, the young nun, was to them. Now she was upset, the elderly nun, that the young nun had left. Now, isn't the point obvious? The elderly nun had prayed as a theist, not as a Christian. She never put skin to her prayer. She never practically involved herself in trying to bring about what she was asking God to do. She left things totally up to God. And many of us might well be thinking this morning, well, what's wrong with that? God doesn't need our help to, um, for him to answer our prayers. You know, if you do that, if you're expecting us to help God, that's effectively striving in unbelief. That represents, you know, a lack of faith in God. Well, I'm sorry, but I beg to differ. See, when we pray, we pray through Christ, don't we? We often end our prayers through Christ our Lord. But you see, this is not some spiritual phrase that we tack on to our prayers. When we pray through Christ or in Jesus' name, Yes, we are praying through Christ, who is our mediator, but we, we are the body of Christ. So when we pray, there are some occasions, some occasions, when we are not only asking God in heaven to act, we are also charging ourselves as part of the body of Christ with some responsibility for answering that prayer. You see, to pray as a Christian demands that we do whatever we possibly can to bring about what we are asking. That's what James complains about. Faith not accompanied by action is dead, he said. You see, the elderly nun left things purely up to God. But how was God to let the young nun know that she was wanted, that she was valued, that she was appreciated by the community, if the community never told her? See, if my wife Natalie is seriously ill, 
and I pray that she gets well, but do not contact the doctor or drive her to the doctors. I have prayed as a theist and not as a Christian, in addition to which I am an idiot. See, if I, if I see a friend who is depressed and pray for him, but do not speak to him and encourage him, I am praying as a theist and not as a Christian. If my friend has a material or a financial need, which I have the means to help with, and I simply pray for her without offering practical help, I am praying as a theist and not as a Christian. So each one of us might ask ourselves that question. Does my life indicate that I am a Christian or simply a theist? Christians follow. Theists leave everything to God. Let's talk about another area of the Christian life. Let's talk about the area of guidance. And the Bible has plenty to say on the question of guidance. Let's read you a couple of uh, Proverbs. Proverbs 11 and verse 14 says, For lack of guidance a nation falls, but many advisers make victory sure. Proverbs 15 and verse 22 says, Plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisers they succeed. Now, it amazes me how many Christians seek guidance and direction for important decisions in their lives as theists instead of as Christians. See, as Christians, seeking guidance, we should not only be looking to God, but also to the advice being given to us by our trusted friends, our mentors, our faith community, do you, remember the, do you remember the story of the conversion of Paul? He was on his way famously to Damascus, wasn't he? To probably planning to persecute a few more Christians. When he was knocked off his feet by a light from heaven, and he hears a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul answers, who are you? And the answer comes, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, can you think of anything strange? You notice anything strange about this conversation? You see, Jesus accuses Paul of persecuting him. Yet Paul has never, ever met Jesus. Never seen him. So how can he be persecuting Jesus who's not even on earth? He's with the Father. Well, the answer, of course, is by persecuting his body. Who is Jesus' body? 
his church, his people. Jesus identifies himself and the body of believers as one. This is so meaningful, so profound, so important to the Apostle Paul, this teaching. Paul is touched to the heart and he immediately gives his life to Christ there and then. You know the story, I'm sure. But then he is immediately given a lesson about the, the strategic importance of Christ's body on earth. You see, instead of a clear directive, direct from God as to what to do, he's instructed to let himself be taken by the hand and led to Damascus, where the Christian community will tell him what to do. Acts 9 and verse 6. Totally dependent upon the body of Christ. And as a Christian, he is to receive guidance, not only from God above, but also from the community below. You see, if we are to follow, we have to take the local body of Christ seriously. We won't insist on doing our own thing or acting like a theist saying, it's okay, God has told me. How many times have I heard those famous uh, last words? We will share Christ's passion for his church and recognize it as God does, as his very real presence in the world today. We will give the body of Christ a priority in our life. We will place uh, our gifts at its disposal. We will support its leaders. We will serve others and care for those in need. We will give to the church financially as the scriptures teach. See, following Jesus is not something we do alone. God never calls us to walk in discipleship alone, but always in community. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, one body, many parts. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honoured, Every, point, every part rejoices with it. I wonder whether you would agree with me this morning if I were to say this. What singularly is missing within Christianity today? The thing that would make it really credible to the world and to our families I suggest it's not more preaching, uh, not more good deeds, not more charismatic gifts, not even powerful prophetic words, however great all those things are. The greatest need of our time, I would suggest this morning, is what the Bible calls koinonia, the call simply to be a church community, to offer to the world a living, breathing, loving community. It was the case in the first century and it remains 
a truth today that wherever there is strong community, there is also strong faith, and that's what attracts the world to the church and therefore to God. That makes perfect sense because God designed Christianity as, as I said before, a communal endeavour. It's not to be done, if it's not done in community as a multifaceted body, it simply doesn't work. Now, obviously, this is difficult at the moment while we live through this pandemic, but when people cannot experience the warmth of human touch, in the end, they will not believe the gospel. And there is something incredibly powerful about realising that you belong, that you are accepted and loved, that you really are part of a community, God's community, Several years ago, a great spiritual writer by the name of Carlo Caretto wrote a letter addressed to the church. Let me read you part of this letter. He says this, How much I criticise you, my church, and yet how much I love you. You have made me suffer more than anyone, and yet I owe you more than I owe anyone. I should like to see you destroyed, and yet I need your presence. You have given me much scandal, and yet you alone have made me understand holiness. Never in the world have I seen anything more reactionary, more compromised, more false, yet never have I touched anything more pure, more generous, or more beautiful." So where should I go? To build another church? But I cannot build another church without the same defects, for they are my defects. And again, if I were to build another church, it would be my church and not Christ's church. No, I am old enough. I know better. Have you ever noticed, friends, as we draw this to a close, that the church is full of imperfect people, like you and me? It contains the proud, the unforgiving, the sinful, the disobedient, the obnoxious, the rude, the arrogant, the immoral, etc., etc., And quite often when someone encounters rudeness or hypocrisy or sinfulness, they say, this is ridiculous. I don't have to put put up with this. I'm, I'm out of here. And Jesus looks, I'm sure, and smiles and says, if I may put words into his mouth, I think you're missing the point. You cannot bypass a flawed family on earth to try and relate to a non-flawed God in heaven. I'll close with these famous words by the 16th century mystic, Saint Teresa of Avila. Christ has no body but yours. No hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes through which he looks with compassion on this world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. 
Yours are the hands through which he blesses all the world. Yours are the hands, yours are the feet, yours are the eyes. You are his body. Christ has no body now on earth but yours. Amen.